brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrip.com, on time, on target. It was absolutely a pleasure and an honor having uh, Sergeant Major Mike Vining on once again on the last episode. For round two. Uh, yeah, it blew my mind, too. I was hearing some of those things for the first time. Yeah, excellent stories. I especially, personally, I just thought it was funny that growing up and studying explosives in the backyard, <laughs> I know that that's not, you know, anything, uh, probably not even unique to him. I'm sure a lot of people from that era grew up doing the same thing, but it just made me laugh. Yeah, that was a funny story. Yeah, so if you haven't listened, check out the last episode. And, and the cool thing is this episode, we have a colleague of Mike's coming on, which is David Rarden, an, another EOD. And we're often told here, you guys never have Air Force guys on the show, so we're, we're doing it. Uh, it's going to be an interesting interview, actually. Yeah, and if someone refers, uh, if Mike refers us to someone, they've got to be good, I would assume. Yeah. Um, so I guess the big news to talk about right now that everyone is talking about, and uh, I was saying to Jack before we record, I don't like to harp so much on the Trump stuff, but it does apply to war and what we talk about every week on this show. Uh, he put a tweet out, which people at least interpreted as threatening to bomb Syria with, you know, the didn't you say the bombs are coming? It was pretty clear. I mean, you don't yeah. have to read a lot into the tweet. <laughs> well, he's now saying, you know, I, he's kind of backpedaling a bit, but... I, I, I personally did like Rand Paul's response, which a lot of people put out there, um, retweeted, where he said, promising war by tweet insults not only the Constitution, but every soldier who puts their life on the line. Um, Alex Hollings put an article up on softrep.com about it. Uh, yeah, any reaction from you? I mean, to me, at, at this point, nothing is out of the ordinary with Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the problem, too, is like we get kind of inoculated to it and just become numb to it. Like, I don't care about anything Trump posts on Twitter. I mean, I don't take him seriously. Uh, I don't think he takes himself seriously. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, that doesn't mean it isn't dangerous or reckless to, you know, post all these things. And I mean, I think it's idiotic. Yeah. And and also, I, I do think if you are a service member or family member of a service member, uh, just kind of talking about war and this like cavalier nature is not on Twitter. It's like a a return to like the new kind of jingoism or something. Like we need to go to war for glory here. <laughs> what? Yeah, and <laughs> I I personally am very uncomfortable with it when it comes from a civilian because they've never seen the horrors of war. You know, John McCain is yeah very, because he dodged the draft three times. Sure, you know, John McCain is very hawkish, but at least part of me is able to say. He's been there. He's done that. He was a POW. If anyone deserves to have this stance, I feel someone like... At least has some understanding of the costs. Yeah. Yeah, and they they just about paid the ultimate sacrifice and lived to tell about it. I I think it's pretty funny, too, when you um, contrast that with his words during the campaign where he was always harping on the uh, Obama administration at the time. Like, why are you telegraphing our moves? Why do we tell them what we're going to do? 
Yeah, he seems to contradict himself a lot on. Yeah, stuff he like doesn't. He doesn't take himself seriously. That's why he has no shame in kind of backpedaling or yeah. retracting things or changing his mind. He criticized Obama for golfing, doing the same. I thing. mean, yeah, that's all. It, it's not. It's not a uh, serious for him. Yeah. Um, well, on to something that I know caught your attention. There was a New York Times article on Rhodesia titled. Rhodesia's dead, but white supremacists have given it new life online and uh, wanted to get your take on it. Yeah, it caught my attention because of, you know, the work we've done on uh, Rhodesia and the people we've interviewed here, some of the veterans, uh, Tim Bax, very recently, Hugh Slatter was on the show. We've interviewed Keith Nell. Um, All these people are Rhodesian Bush War vets. Um, And this article I I read, it's, uh, it's not like, all bad. There's actually some good things in it and some good things that come out of it because what the gist of the article is, is that there's a sort of growing Rhodesian nostalgia, although the author doesn't really understand why. It's it's because of um, the fact that we've been in a counterinsurgency, you know, low intensity conflict for 16 years. So there's a lot of soldiers who have taken a renewed interest in the Rhodesian Bush War to see like what kind of lessons can we learn from that. Um, he thinks it came out of Dylan Roof, uh, that, that nutcase that shot up the school. Or, I'm sorry, a church. Yeah. Black, um, black, black. Right, a black church. church. And he posted a picture of him, or he had a the picture of him came out where he's wearing a jacket with a Rhodesian flag on it and the South African flag, which for him is an appeal to white supremacy, um, white nationalism. Uh, all that kind of crap. Which and, makes sense because Dylan Roof, I think, also wore the Confederate flag. Yeah, and Dil- Dylan Roof doesn't know a damn thing about Rhodesia or probably South Africa either. But there is something to the what what this article is trying to say. There is something to these white supremacists who make an appeal um, or a nostalgia towards um, the apartheid government that existed in South Africa or the white settler government that existed in Rhodesia. And they try to use that to you know, bolster their argument or say like, oh, this was the white homeland or whatever nonsense they believe. It's it's a fantasy version of reality. Um, but at the same time, I, I thought the article did a bit of a disservice to Rhodesia as well because it kind of paints this picture. It, it conflates apartheid with Rhodesia at one point, which Rhodesia did not have an apartheid government. That was South Africa. Um, Rhodesia did have a white settler government, and, you know, thankfully, we've moved on from that in the world and we don't, you know, practice that form of government governance anymore. Um, but it, it kind of contr- it casts Rhodesia just purely as this white supremacist state and the Rhodesian soldiers who are fighting for white supremacy in a racial war. And it just isn't accurate. It, it's not historically or factually accurate. The enemy in that conflict were communist-inspired and communists um, like financially and with material support sponsored by the uh, Soviet Union and China. And they were communist terrorists. Uh, they would go into villages and cut off people's ears and cut off people's lips and rape women and say, you're coming over to our side, you're going to be a communist insurgent now. Or we're going to, you know, rape the rest of your family, or we're going to murder your wife, and all. I mean, they were communist terrorists. That's not like some um, historical revisionism or something. That's true. Uh, so I, I think the author definitely kind of he. I got the feeling that it was like this sort of knee jerk attempt 
to virtue signal without doing a lot of the work on Rhodesia and understanding what that conflict was about. But at the same time, I think it does rightly expose some racists out there who try to use Rhodesia and they talk about Rhodesia um, or different businesses trying to market like Rhodesian paraphernalia. Um, Is that like a popular thing? I don't know if it's a popular thing, but there are some people, some small businesses, people trying to do that. sell like Rhodesia t-shirts and they make the point that, there's a tongue in cheek kind of like it's like it's a code word, like wink, wink, you know, we're all racists. <laughs> ha ha. Um, and I'm sure for some people that's the case and for other people it isn't. But then it gets really silly when they go into uh, the stuff about Larry Vickers. And, you know, some of the people who listen probably I'm sure they're well acquainted with Larry Vickers because he's a uh, marksmanship instructor. Uh, he's a former Delta Force operator. Um you know, I, I don't know Larry personally. I don't know him from Adam, but I thought it was pretty funny to see some of the stuff in this article. They're like reporting on Larry's Instagram account, like, oh, look, Larry posted a picture of a FinFal, uh, and then there's a pin from the Salute Scouts and the Rhodesian SAS. And, and it's all kind of like a wink, wink, speaking of code words, like, is Larry a racist? We don't know, but, but we're just checking. You know, it's that kind of thing. And and there's all this reporting in there about like, oh, Larry deleted some of the racist comments people made on his Instagram, and then he turned comments off on certain videos. And it's like, how did journalism become this? That like we're reporting on the like the nuances of social media. Um, it's you know the the whole Twitter journalism that I that I harp against. Like, how did somebody's Twitter account? And of course, Trump is <laughs> emblematic of this. But he he is the president yeah. at the same time. Um, but how how did it become like like somebody's Instagram account become worthy of a news story? Do like, you think it was just put up for historical reasons? The same way you would, yeah, do something yeah. Like the same the same way we post stuff about it. I think the same way um, that we had Hugh Slider on sure. just a few weeks ago, who's a Rhodesian pilot. Who then he he stuck around and tried to help out Zimbabwe. And, and by the way, was on the podcast praising Nelson Mandela. Like, definitely did not sound like any type of like, uh, like white I said, nationalist. The people who think that the Rhodesian conflict was just about white nationalism are intellectual infants who have no business commenting on that conflict because they haven't done the work. They haven't done the research on it. Um, you know, Larry, I, I don't think he's a racist. I don't believe that for a moment. I, I think it's just, that was just like a kind of like, you know, throwaway, like, oh, look what's on social media. He must be a racist. Yes, they have to find something to write about. Yeah. And I, also, if you're writing really a whole silly. article about the, the growing popularity in this movement, you got to find things to correlate your argument. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd even categorize it as a movement. I mean, I guess white supremacy is a movement, and there are some white supremacists who have tried to latch on to this, as I, as I mentioned previously. Um, but there's also just a larger um, interest and in growing understanding about Rhodesia and that conflict and studying it and seeing what went right, what went wrong. Um, you know, most people don't understand the things that the, the Rhodesian Light Infantry and the SAS and the Salute Scouts did over there, much less the Rhodesian African Rifles. A lot of people don't understand this. There were more black people fighting for Rhodesia than there were white, and they were not conscripts. Hmm. These were people who joined the Rhodesian military. And that's just another factoid that gets brushed under the rug when, you know, people publish articles like this. 
Interesting. And, you know, it's important that you bring this up because I think most of the public is not very familiar with this conflict. So if they see an article in the New York Times, this might be their only knowledge of right. the subject. So they, they do have a duty on some level to present what's really going on. Just to on. present it in a, in a balanced and accurate way um, rather than kind of, you know, he does, you know, this article, I think it does the the same thing that Dylan Roof does, that he tries to paint it with a very broad brush um, and try to tries to use it and use that conflict to advance his own agenda. Um, but it's just a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more complicated in all actuality. Interesting. All right. Well, um, also, we got some emails before we get to David, uh, and there were some good ones. I, You know what? I'll read the funny one first because I loved it. <laughs> uh, Jack, I am disturbed by the lack of hentai-related content on your personal <laughs> Instagram account. For a man of many interests like yourself to not have any posts related to this is quite troubling. Please change this. Ian, don't ever shut the fuck up about the Big Bang in Pyongyang. Not till everyone knows its greatness. Keep up the great work, gentlemen. And that's from Hunter. There's not enough tentacle porn. On my <laughs> well, I guess after you saw this email. I did. By popular I, demand. By popular demand, I posted a, a picture from the uh, anime or manga book that um, the Odyssean gave yep. me for my wedding gift. <laughs> I, whoever knew that there was a there was a book of like you know graphic novel type book of SF or or special ops like cute anime girls with like tactical gear yeah and it has like the different branches right doesn't it have like SEAL teams yeah yeah and, by unit you better be careful man the Times is gonna go troll my Instagram account and they're <laughs> like this is proof that Jack Murphy is a neo fascist into anime porn and. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, at Jack McMurph, if you want to look at hentai porn. Well, not really porn. Here's a picture of Jack Murphy in Germany posted on his Instagram account. Nazi confirmed. (laughs) Um, And then here's another one that I found interesting. Once again, sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. Hey, guys, question for you. In recent Marine recruiting ads... You can see what appears to be a breaching and house to house fighting situation. As an army enlistee, I will be the first to say that combat and by extension killing are necessary evils that must be exercised to preserve order. Still, part of me finds it unsettling that we may be advertising that kind of thing in recruiting ads. We hear a lot of debate in this country, especially lately, about gun violence in video games, movies, etc. On the other hand, maybe we should be showing people exactly what they could be getting into. Uh, on the other, oh, he said on one hand, sorry, and then he says on the other, maybe this is too far for ads that target young men. I'm torn, and I'd love to hear your take on it. Does com- does combat footage or dramatizations of combat have a place in recruiting ads? Thanks for your time. That's from Ryan. Um, good question. Really good question. I'm not sure I have the answer. Um, and I haven't seen the the advertisement. I could actually pull it up if you want to see. Yeah, go ahead, pull it up. Because he sent it. Um, he he sent a one to it. Just give me a minute here. Uh, all right. So this is the ad. All right. Wait, um. So why the Marines?
that I love, the country I'm honored to serve. I am going to say that was pretty tame, I thought. I, I thought it was pretty tame. I, I think it's pretty much what you expect from a recruitment ad. It's a lot of, uh, you know, Americana, wholesome America. We're playing sports. We're doing high school things. We're voting. We're the being breach good to me Americans. even looks like it could have been a training exercise. Yeah, and then we're showing. Oh, here's all the cool stuff that you get to do in the Marines, and you know you're waving the flag around and <laughs> blah blah blah. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't. I'm not like offended by it. Really, I don't. Yeah, know. not I don't at think all. There's anything in there that's wrong. Yeah, what I was going to say. I mean, you certainly have a right to your opinion on this, but my reaction, I really didn't see anything even remotely controversial. No, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't. I, I think you know recruitment ads should like just show people what it is. You know, like, yeah. Go ahead, show them, show them the real deal. Yeah, and I, and I don't think there was anything. Uh, when you say show show them the real deal, there was nothing that graphic there. No, um, and it was like Hollywood stuff. Yeah, and it very much that particular scene looks like. I, I mean, I've never been in the military, but that looks like it could have been something done yeah, as an yeah. exercise. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's a scene where they're like helping refugees, and yeah, yeah. All right, well, keep sending emails to softrep.radio at softrep.com. And uh, I think, unless you have anything else to say, we can get to uh, David Rairden. Sure. So, joining us on the podcast is a guy referred to us by um, Sergeant Major Mike Vining, and you know. Prior to prior to Sergeant Major Vining, I don't even think we had any EODs on the podcast, right? No, I don't believe we did. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a real honor to have another EOD following that episode and an Air Force guy because, David, we often get told we never have Air Force guys on here. So uh, David is an Air Force EOD, served in the Persian Gulf War and Iraq War. Um, I mean, the biggest thing that we'll get into was that you were there during the Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia, which killed... 20 guys um, or 20 people injured, nearly 500 people. And uh, before we even get into all that, I was actually curious. Are you currently still serving? Because I saw that you were at a dot .mil address, right? Oh, no, it's okay. Uh, yeah, um, so I retired in 04 after 24 years. Uh, I came in the Air Force in 1980 as a fireman, no less. I did that for five years. But during those five years, I had always supported EOD guys and I loved the work. I just didn't like uh, the politics involved in the in the military fire department. It's just not the same as a civilian. And uh, so my last uh, duty station as a fireman was at Eglin. And if you ever get a chance, they do have an awesome museum there. But they also, the EOD shop, they're responsible for testing the weapons that come online. So it might take 10 to 20 years before they actually perfect a weapon. And they have all the cutaways, and so when you go in there, it's just pretty dang impressive. Uh, so that's I made a decision to do that, and I graduated from Indian Head, Maryland. That, the EOD school now is currently down at uh, Eglin Air Force Base, and uh, they moved mostly because they were restricted to the explosive uh, quantities they could actually do. I think the most we ever did at one time was five to ten pounds, but it uh, broke windows a lot of times in the uh, the community around the uh, the, the demo range. And uh, so anyway, I, best job in the Air Force. I'm going to tell you that right now. I love being an EOD guy, uh, but you get older, you start putting the glasses on. You know, then you're a staff guy. So uh, I retired in '04, and the Civil Engineer Squadron, which is in the Air Force construct. 
That is where EOD is located. We've had many homes over the years. People thought that uh, we fit, fit under munitions or overseas it was supplied. There's just not really a good fit. And they recently tried to put us under Battlefield Airmen. I'm sure you could have some really good conversations about that. Battlefield Airmen is the TAC-P, yep. the pararescue guys, and they thought that was a good fit for EOD. Uh, it probably is. It could be. Uh, but civil engineers invest too much money in officers, and they didn't want to give up the officers. So I think that was the main uh, block right there to have EOD transfer over to Battlefield Airmen. But uh, that would probably be a good fit. And it might, might happen down the road, especially if we continue to have conflicts. But uh, EOD and the Air Force, probably just like the Army or the other ones, were a support function, and uh, that has blurred over the years, especially with Afghanistan and Iraq. And you saw a lot of EOD guys that uh, were in convoys, got called up to do a lot of the work for the convoys for clearing. And I don't know if anybody knows this, but the Air Force was responsible probably for 70% of the clearance operations for convoys. And I'm sure you're going to have some Army guys dispute that, <laughs> but that mission was different. They were clearing actually uh, property. That was, I think, the main mission for the Army. So the Air Force got most of those missions. And uh, we've even had people said, you know, the Air Force still lives in hotels. And I think <laughs> if you ask anybody, those lines have blurred, and I think everybody is pretty much doing the same thing. So that's, that's, that's where we're at now. Things have changed a lot, and I hope that we don't forget the old lessons as well as we bring technology online. you still got to have a guy walk down and look at things from time to time. I, one of the things I wanted to ask you to clarify is, I can hazard a guess, of course, but what's the difference between the EOD techs um, between the different services? Because the Air Force has their guys, Navy, Army. Um, what's the difference between them, or are they all kind of homogenous? No, no, that's, no, no, that's definitely not true. So, and again, this is my opinion. You're gonna, you, you can probably ask anybody, but for the Air Force, we do uh, aircraft. We do range clearances. We do Secret Service support. Everybody does Secret Service support. Uh, we also have a nuke mission that we support. Uh, when you talk to uh, the Marines uh, and the Navy, uh, of course they do support aircraft on carriers. And I love what the, the Navy did to their airplanes. They made safing uh, munitions racks very simple, like on the F-A-18. But, uh, the Army used to have a nuke uh, programs, uh, but that has basically gone away. So when you go to EOD school, and uh, you might, again, want to check with some of the guys that are still in. It's been, it's been a long time. It's been almost 18 years for me. Uh, everybody used to go to school together, and then the Navy would break off and go to dive school uh, before the nuke program. And then you would see them again. Uh, they would come back later. So the class usually broke up, and a lot of times the Army, if you were E5 and below, you didn't go through the new portion of the school. Uh, and then they, they basically have phased it out. But the Air Force goes all the way through, and, uh, again, the missions have kind of changed a little bit, but, I, I you know, you're going to see that uh, some of those things are specialized. Uh, can any service take care of an airplane crash? Sure. I mean, you just have to look in the TOs. Our TOs are the same technical orders, and they follow uh, uh, the same patterns. You just look it up. Now, you're going to see that uh, each service has different pieces and parts they use. Uh, but uh, as far as missions, I think the Navy guys try to be a little more SEAL-like uh, sometimes. Um, 
but it's been uh, historically that somebody knocks on your door and asks you if you can support them, and we've usually done that. I think one of the things that uh, changed for the Air Force, uh, you remember the uh, the pilot that crashed, uh, he suicided an A-10 in the side of a mountain? Yeah, I do recall reading about that, actually. Yeah, well, that was one of the instances where we had no idea. We only had some guys that actually did mountain climbing as recreation. And at that time, somebody just would come up and say, hey, we got a mission for you. We'd go, okay, we'd figure it out and go do it. But we realized there that the helicopters, they could only fly up so high. They made a base camp, dropped stuff off, and you definitely had to know how to climb mountains. I mean, that was no kidding. You were going to get killed just climbing if you made a mistake. Uh, it took them a long time to clean that up. So I think, uh, and I'm, I'm going to guess that was probably 95, 96 when that happened. Yeah. And uh, then they started getting more specialized training. Uh, the only the only issue I ever ever had with that is if you know you you do so many different uh, diversified tasks that you're still not able to do your basic tasks, right. which is render safe munitions and IEDs. So uh, if you can keep that as a good balance, uh, I think that uh, you're going to do well. But uh, I think there's sometimes you got to hand missions over to somebody else or have people assigned to that mission. Uh, kind of like the nuke mission, and when they finish that, they go to another base. But the basic training program uh, is the same. Well, I mean, that's what we've seen throughout the war on terror, right? And, uh, I mean, that's how I'm familiar with EOD personnel mostly is that they would get assigned to special operations units and because of the IED threat. And, you know, of course, you find munitions on objectives. Um, you know, we, we often worked with EOD technicians. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, and I, I spent five years in Okinawa, and I loved that place. Uh, you know, the Navy uh, hit that place hard for World War II, and uh, basically around for every yard, if not more, with the big guns. And uh, I think when they said we still had like maybe 700 tons to remove, oh, wow. and we had already cleared that during the five years I worked there, but of course the... Uh, the Japanese Self-Defense Force, they had everything outside of the base perimeter, but I almost any time somebody was digging in the soil, just like Germany, they would dig something up, and then it would become, uh, you'd become a, bit, a little bit of an archaeologist, right? You'd have to measure, and, and because there was really no defining marks anymore except for some of the, uh, the screw-together points and uh, the width and all that, and then you would have to figure out what the filler was. Um, it was just very interesting. I loved that work. But uh, uh, that and, of course, all the rounds that we, divers would bring up. So uh, that has always been a, the, a neat thing about going over and finding the history of rounds. Um, being being a battlefield archaeologist. Uh, that will yeah. keep us in business forever. But uh, as far as range clearances, I think that the, the Navy was uh, – not the Navy, but the Army was fairly new on this – the Army didn't start clearing ranges probably till the mid-'80s. The Air Force actually had to start doing range clearances because uh, in the early-'70s, we had planes dropping bombs, and the ranges were so polluted that you had hard bombs bouncing back up in the air and exploding, causing damage to aircraft. So that's really, in oh 1974, God. started the EOD program to clean ranges. And there's a regular schedule for that. So I know that the Army actually started that, and that causes a lot of problems on a fluted <laughs> range. You blow something up, the next thing you uncover five other things. And, uh, you know, it's just a long, drawn-out process to get that range uh, clearance started. 
Wow. So you, for you, your EOD career started because you were stationed on Eglin as a firefighter and saw what the EOD guys down the street did? Well, yeah, but so the, the, the first time I saw EOD, this is, I'll just go, my first base was Holloman, and uh, I, was, I always got put together with a, a civilian. He was kind of a sourpuss, and <laughs> he just told me to get in the truck. You know, I'm an, an E1. He goes, get in the truck. we got to go do this thing. He didn't really explain anything. And uh, at Holloman, there's a lot of test missions that go on, and one of those is the, 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 uh, the test sled track. And they do anything from putting chimpanzees in ejection seats, and then it goes down the, the, the track, and then the seat goes off, and then you got some guy tranking the, the chimpanzee so he's not hurting anybody. Um, and then they do other acceleration tests as well. Uh, at the end of the, the sled track was a, the EOD disposal pit. So we drove out there in a truck, and we saw them putting all these rocket motors in there, and uh, the civilian goes over, and he asks the guys what they're doing. He comes back, oh, they're going to blow up 50,000 pounds, right? So, and then he told us where we were going to have to park. And I'm, I'm this young guy, and I'm thinking, we're, we're going to be a mile away. Why are we this far back, right? Well, anyway, when this thing went off, it, we're in an 18-wheeler uh, with a water tank. We're there to put the fire out. It pushed the 18-wheeler down and back. And... Uh, so anyway, without the permission of the UD guy, the civilian drove down there to start putting fires out, and we get cut off by the UD guys in the truck, and they proceeded to cuss them out, and uh, we're going to beat them up, I think, if he wouldn't uh, stop. And uh, then these other guys ran over this bigger hole in the ground. They're jumping up and down, and I go, you know what? This is this looks like a pretty good job. So that was the first time that I thought that you know there's other other opportunities in the air force and i i was just in the back of my mind i was thinking i would love to do that so that was the start of that but uh, every other place i was at it was the same thing they came in they reported to the base commander they went out and did their job coordinated with who they needed to and then they would usually leave so yeah i thought it was a pretty interesting job and uh at eglin i ran into a retiring chief the same day I was actually out processing and when I told him I was going to UD school he gave me a look that I've given to many people myself and basically it's just okay so you think you're going to make it through school right well good luck to you <laughs> and uh and, and you have people that that have problems when they go through the the course um you got to have common sense you got to have mechanical skills and you have to be able to come up with the plan I mean that's and stay with that plan that's Pretty much what an EOD guy uh, that's worth his salt is going to do, right? Seems like you need and, a steady uh, hand and a calm mind also. Yes, and uh, I'll tell you, if, if you get bent out of shape, hopefully your guys, and it can't happen, uh, your guys that you're talking to, they're going to help you. It, it pretty much comes down to, you know, you do have your rank and your respect for authority, but uh, even the uh, the youngest airman, if he's got a an idea he brings up everybody listens and and then they go okay i think that's a good idea and then we'll go with the plan but uh, everybody gets to say so and it usually works out pretty good so how do you want to get into the cobar towers story um i was actually refreshing my memory a little bit brushing up on the history and the cool uh, thing today. is david sent us like the entire yeah, timeline yeah. which was really remarkable. well I, and again i just wanted if you wanted to we could just talk through that, sure. and uh, and then when you say, okay, that's good enough, and then we could just move on to the next thing, if that's okay with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start off with, uh, 
So uh, I was stationed at uh, Barksdale Air Force Base when I got tasked to go to Cobar. Now, I, I just come from Okinawa. And uh, and how long had you been in EOD tech at this point? Oh, let's see. So I came in 85. So this is almost 10 years. Okay, okay, so you were pretty salty when you got sent over. Yeah, I was. I would say I was at my prime. I was uh, 35 years old, uh, a tech sergeant, and uh, which is an E6 uh, for the Army folks out there, Navy. Um, the reason why I got stuck with going to Cobar, so uh, at Barksdale, uh, two years prior, they had just left SAC. There was no longer a strategic air command, and it came under uh, air combat command. Now, uh, SAC, they did not do deployments, and so they brought a bunch of us into uh, Barksdale and some of the other SAC, uh, former SAC bases to actually uh, teach these guys how to do conventional warfare. So uh, it was very agonizing. It was hilarious at some times. Uh, and a lot of people didn't listen to the advice they gave them, at least the, the first time we had exercises, and then they, they quickly adjusted. But the hard thing about it at Barksdale was uh, the SAC or the nuclear mission took a lot of time. You had to QC a lot of the operations, and with everybody going TDY uh, to other locations to work, a lot of the people ended up doing these certs over and over again to get one or two guys qualified. So this was just a, a very tedious and long, drawn-out process. I remember guys who were assigned to the uh, Greenlight program back in the day telling me about the inspections they had to go through, and it just sounded so strenuous and stressful for all of them. Oh, yeah, it was. And some of the, so some of the mission, uh, the, the weapon systems, it was eight-plus hours just to do the cert. Wow. And we would do a couple of practices. So you were out there all day just doing one system. Very tedious. Uh, but, of course, it was, it, that's what was demanded. Um, so when I got there, uh, I'd already been to the Gulf War, and there was hardly any of the, uh, the former SAC guys. They had not gone. And if you looked at EOD, most of the folks were doing, uh, they were doing the Northern Watch and the Southern Watch, and uh, they had gone, but uh, we had a huge list of E-5s that probably needed to go, but they were still undercover. We had so many guys that wanted to go. And we had a gentleman, uh, he made E-6. He jumped right to the top of the list. Well, uh, in our flight, one of the things that we didn't know, he immediately went to the commander and he finagled a uh, job down at Eglin to go teach at the EOD school. So the first thing that our flight chief heard about this was uh, that, hey, your guy's been selected to go down to, to teach at the, the, the schoolhouse, and, oh, by the way, you have to replace him with somebody else. So I got basically stuck to take his deployment. And uh, so I arrive on the 19th of June, and me and there was two other EOD techs on the airplane with me that we flew in from Philadelphia along with the rest of the rotation. This was the beginning of the rotation change. So what usually happens is uh, the personnel coming in will take in a lot of the additional duties, and we already had a person that was going to take the equipment. So he was coming in later, but we were trying to take all the additional duties for those guys getting ready to rotate out. Uh, so we were the new guys. Of course, it was a joke about everything. How many days do you have left? And uh, but for me, some of the key things I'll just want to highlight about this deployment, this was the first time that 40% of the personnel there were female. 
there was almost this university feel to the uh, the atmosphere at this place. And uh, so when you got there, you also had uniforms waiting for you. Uh, I have never had a deployment like this. So some of the Army guys are going to go like, you know, this is unbelievable. This sounds like the true Air Force deployment, right? <laughs> but if, if you look at Cobar Towers, a quick history of it, the towers were built to actually house the Bedouins. The Gulf State nations, they were tired of the Bedouins going across the borders, doing whatever, and then moving out. I mean, they were still making raids on people. <laughs> and so they built the, the towers in hopes that the Bedouins would stay in it. And, of course, uh, then the Bedouins tried to bring their camels inside the towers, and I think that was it. They said, okay, go back to roaming. So these towers were basically standing vacant until the Gulf War. And uh, the Air Force actually stayed at uh, Prince Aziz Air Base, which is just across the street from the towers, and the Army was, was in there, it, the permanent party. So you still had the, I, I don't know if you remember, the Army personnel that were killed by the scud that hit the, uh, the hangar they were waiting in before they were going to go forward, right, uh, during the Gulf mm -hmm. War. Uh, you had the personal party of the Army that was in the towers uh, during the Gulf War. Uh, so then the towers were, were empty again unless there was a skeleton crew. I don't know. I don't really remember that. But uh, when I showed up on, on 19 June, it was just a hurricane of moving through and figuring out what your duties were, uh, where everything was at, who you needed to deal with. And, oh, by the way, you know, these, some of these people you're talking to, they'll be gone in a couple of weeks. So just remember where their office is at, and you'll be able to deal with that. Um, so it was kind of interesting that we were actually uh, in the towers uh, in 96, and then CE was in the building. Uh, the building that was blown up was 131, and I think our building was 133, yeah, uh, CE building. So uh, my initial impression after arriving was looking out the window of the tower. Uh, EOD had the whole sixth floor. So... Uh, the rest of CE was in the bottom, so this was a complete uh, CE building, and then the officers were on the seventh floor. And I got my own room, which was amazing, and uh, it was just, uh, it just seemed like we had come of age that we were actually not in tents, we were in a building, and I think everybody thought this was pretty neat, even though you were deployed for, for three months. Right. So... Um, we were just running all over the place trying to figure out what we were doing, and our, our actual work center was across the road. We were in a trailer uh, fairly close to the entrance of the air base, and uh, that was the situation. So I think we had about uh, 19 people when I got there, and we were going to go up to about 22, 24. So we already had some of the uh, current rotation folks leave, and we were picking up their uh, responsibilities, and we were just figuring out what we were going to do. Um, it, it really wasn't a bad deployment. Um, at that time, uh, we, we were still able to go to different countries without orders, and that changed. Uh, I remember in uh, deploying for this the, uh, in 03, you actually had to have an order that in to leave uh, Doha to go up to Al-Udeed. And it was just crazy that we used to be able to go out, drive across country lines without, and just use our regular deployment orders, right? And go to different places and get the mission done. But uh, uh, that's, you could still do that in 96. 
and uh, we went to Bahrain uh, in those uh, first five days to get some equipment calibrated and went up to the Navy base up there, and we did some other things. But it was mostly just to get us a feel of how we were supposed to do things once the, uh, the these guys rotated out, and it was just us. So it would be up to, upon us to train the other guys coming in uh, for the new rotation. Were you aware of any kind of terroristic threats against the installation at that point? No. So this was, this was the, the kind of funny thing. So... Uh, standing looking out of our, our day room on the sixth floor, and I looked down, I go, wow, that, that fence is pretty close. And uh, and I go, yeah, it's about 80 feet away from the building, a little bit more than that. And, I, oh, there's another meeting we go to on a monthly basis, the Security Council. And, and uh, you know, every time the UD guys stand up and say, sir, uh, we should either vacate these buildings or we move the fence out. And they go, duly noted, they'd write it in the notes. And... Uh, so anyway, that, that had been going on for two years. But I, this, this whole thing that we didn't understand their culture, that that parking lot supported a mosque, and when the, the Saudis said, we will think about it, we didn't have people that understood that really meant like, well, no, we're never yeah, going to give you yeah. an answer, but we are just pushing this down the road. That's right? like the very Arab way to deal with things, yes. actually. Uh, so <laughs> they don't want to say no. That, we said, you know, really, we just need to clear these buildings out, and that would have that would have been it. But uh, when you get there and you're walking around, we're going, why are these uh, security forces up on the roofs of the building? He goes, oh, that started like two weeks ago. That's all anybody knew, the general population. Okay, And, of course, that came out in the, the downing report that uh, they had known that we had had uh, uh, tests of our perimeter, and they decided to keep that between OSI and the commander level. That did not come down. It sounds like, it, um, what was it the Holloway Commission that did the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing? Well, you would have, you would have thought so, but then you also had the OP saying, uh, remember the contractors in, uh, in Riyadh. And if yes. you look at that, I mean, of course they had a parking lot. They didn't have a fence, but it was still very similar to what mm-hmm. happened to uh, at uh, – this location at Cobar Towers. So picking picking it up from there, um, you know, you got into the the day to day routine of things, going about your work. Correct. Uh, so then, also uh, at this time, uh, we never had officers in EOD under the Air Force. It had always been an enlisted operation. Oh, interesting. Uh, but. I think uh, a lot of wing commanders were frustrated when they actually had an E-5, E-6 show up and explain what needed to be done, and a lot of them just felt uneasy about that. We had tried several uh, experiments throughout the years, and basically they would give you an officer, and you'd go, well, sir, I want you to go over and tell the colonel this is what we're doing. You know, and he was just basically repeating what you were going to tell him anyway. It made the officers feel better, but it really slowed down the process, okay? So uh, this was the, the solution. They, they hired this guy, uh, Lieutenant Jones. He was the first UD officer. He had been on the previous rotation, and about the third day in, we found out they were going to keep him for our rotation. And uh, I had issues with the guy. He was a showboat. Um, he was a braggart, and uh, we were just we everybody knew we were going to have problems with the guy. Uh, he was I mean we've had some great Air Force uh, EOD officers. Don't get me wrong, but this was the wrong guy to be the first guy to come in, and 
and I'll explain that a little bit later. But uh, we've had some great leaders. The, the, the one thing that I disagree with the program is most of these EOD officers in the Air Force, they stay one uh, tour, and then they rotate back into CE. And, of course, they understand what EOD does, but, again, uh, you don't see those guys again. So we just continually go through lieutenants and maybe some captains. Uh, who knows if that's going to change. But it would be great if we actually kept officers longer in the program, or at least they could go to an EOD position uh, at the schoolhouse or maybe up at uh, the Pentagon. That would be a great thing. And maybe that's eventually what they're going to do. Um, so anyway, uh, Lieutenant Jones, uh, we had to start working with him, and I spent almost every day with him uh, going over these changes and picking up the, the rotation stuff and checking on the new people coming in and the people going out and making sure that we had their stuff ready for them when they showed up. Uh, and I think that takes us to uh, the day of the bombing, 26 yeah. June. Um, we went through the whole day, and uh, it was dinner time, and we were told that we were getting these uh, Army EOD couples from uh, Kuwait. That's all they told us, right? So they were going to go into our space. We had rooms, and we're going, couples, they're married? And go, yeah, we're getting two married couples from <laughs> the same EUD team coming down from Doha. I guess they're having problems. They came in. So when we came in uh, at the end of the day uh, to get cleaned up for dinner and everything, we noticed that uh, none of them were talking to each other, so it must have been pretty bad stuff. But we welcomed them and, and showed them around, and uh, uh, they just kind of went on their own for the rest of the day. Um, anyway, I took a shower after dinner, and uh, so you used to be able to go downtown wearing shorts and T-shirt, and the Saudis had had enough of that after the Gulf War. Uh, there was actually a, a dress standard. You had to wear long pants, uh, nice, and then a shirt with a collar, long sleeve. And I had actually put on a long sleeve shirt with a collar and pants, and... Uh, so after dinner, Lieutenant Jones came up and said, hey, I need somebody to go downtown with me uh, to pick up the colonel's going away gift. And, and so, of course, all these guys pointed at me. He goes, he's already dressed, right? He's your guy, right? <laughs> so, and I, I know you guys remember this. If you were in a, in a camp or whatever, it is a lengthy process to leave that camp. You yeah. have to check out through your unit. Then you have to check out through the, the wing or the, the battalion or uh the brigade, and then and they got to make sure that you have a vehicle and a radio, all that stuff. It takes about 45 minutes. So um, before we left, I was sitting in this chair in the day room, uh, and, and I forgot to mention the, the rotation before. These guys loved Uno, so they would play <laughs> till like 11 o'clock, and uh, they were just they were having a great time. This is before Netflix. I was uh, <laughs> one of the the army couples, uh, one of the females, she came in and sat on the couch next to me. So I started talking to her about like, okay, so what is it like to work with your spouse? So we were engaged in conversation pretty well until the lieutenant came up and said it's time to go. So we went and signed out, picked up a radio. There was no cell phones at that time for us. I mean, they had them, but uh, that was for the officers. We just had a, a brick and got a vehicle, and we signed out and finally left, and it was just starting to get uh, dark. And if you've been to Dahran, it was still hot and muggy. It was, it was uncomfortable. Um, so we headed downtown to the uh, TCN Mall, uh, the third country national mall. I don't know why it was named that, but that was the name. It had three <laughs> floors, had a parking garage on the top, 
and this is where we were going to pick up the Colonel's going away gift, a plaque. And he was a great guy, uh, shortest Colonel I've ever seen in my life. I think he was like uh, four seven or something like that. What? I mean, he was short, wow. but this guy he made up for it. I mean, he was a dynamo, and. Uh, I'll talk about him a little bit later for the post blast, but uh, um, so we, uh, we we went downtown to get the plaque, and then and, and, uh, we're talking. I'm trying to fill out the lieutenant. He's trying to fill me out and figure out uh, you know how we're going to do things, and 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 uh, so anyway, we still needed a uh, superintendent to come in. I was going to be middle management. That was okay by me. Um, we picked up the plaque. He says, "So you want to go to the the mall?" Go inside and go, sure, it's been a while. It's been, it's been four years for me since I had been there. Uh, so we went in the mall. We walked floor to floor and looked at stuff. And uh, about 9.30, we were up on the third floor, and we're looking around, and, you know, we're the only Americans in there, and, we, you know, it's probably time for us to, to head out the door. So um, we were standing on the staircase at the the third floor when the the detonation went off and uh so when i bring this up a lot of people go, well how did you hear that i heard a double boom okay i heard a boom boom and immediately thought this was on the parking garage on top of the mall and in my mind just from it blew the windows out uh, it shook us really well and this mall is six kilometers away from cobart towers <laughs> oh god I, I thought we'd had at least a 200-pound bomb go off on the roof, and uh, the windows went out. And so uh, I don't know if you're if you guys want to get into this, but I mean, there's two phases of an explosion. You yeah. have the positive phase, which is the blast energy being expended, pushing out, and then when it collapses, and then you have the negative in. phase, and you have a vacuum created by that push, and then you have air rushing back in. And a lot of times. The damage caused is not by the initial, of course it is some damage, but uh, a lot of the damage you get is on the negative phase when the air comes rushing back in. That's what they say the same about nuclear weapons, right? That it's, it's the yes, negative uh, blast I mean, it's the that same, does the damage. It's the same thing. Um, so uh, we saw men pushing women out of the way to run down the stairs, uh, Saudi men. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were just standing there and we were looking around. So, you know, you're trying to process all this stuff. And before we went down the stairs, we walked over to one of the side windows and looked down and saw the glass broken. Uh, there was people getting up off the ground. We looked at the other across the, there was other stores and businesses. Their windows were all gone. And when we looked south towards uh, Cobar Towers, there was no lights on, okay? So that's when we started thinking, like, oh, my gosh, how big was this, this explosion? So, uh we left the radio in the car. We didn't want to carry the radio around. And we started making our way down the stairs and, and down to the, the vehicle. Uh, I would have to say this was the most frustrating time of this, this whole thing was from the vehicle getting in and uh, getting information as to what was happening. Right. Uh, we, so we, we did a quick search on our vehicle, make sure there was no devices and tried the radio once we got inside the car, and the lieutenant was driving. Um, I was trying to raise somebody on the radio. So we were on a, uh, a group channel. So there was a shared channel. It was the emergency channel, and uh, nothing's coming across, and I'm trying to call, and I'm not getting anything. And he pulls into traffic, 
and we are surrounded by all these faces looking at us. And uh, it took us about 20 minutes before we were making any headway in traffic uh, that we actually started to get uh, some radio traffic. Mm-hmm. Now, being a fireman, I mean, we learned how to use the 10 codes. Are you familiar with 10 codes? Uh, they Not finally really. moved away from that because I guess people didn't want to learn them. But you had a, a 10, 10 code was an, a 10 with a, another number behind that, and you knew what that meant. Like you were going to right, lunch, right. you were coming back to the station, you had a vehicle accident. There was a code for everything. Well, the first thing that I heard on the, the radio come across, and I was just totally shocked, was a fireman said, we found another one, and there was no emotion in his voice, and he said, he's dead, he's decapitated. And I'm wow. thinking like, so how many uh, communications have already happened? How many dead people are there? And this guy has totally lost radio protocol, right? And he's in, uh, sh- in shock, probably. Oh, yeah, again, I just, so at this point in time, uh, the lieutenant, he starts this mantra about, uh, I should have been with my men. I mean, he just went on and on. He goes, and then he starts saying, purple heart, purple heart. And I just said, sir, you just got to calm down, okay? You're driving. Just pay attention to driving. But he just continued to do this. So I was, I was thinking, like, you know, we could be, I could be the only functional EOD guy in the area. That's what I was thinking. Because uh, you don't know if all your friends, all your comrades might have been killed in the blast. Correct. It was not. It took another five minutes before I start getting reports, and I. So the uh, the superintendent at that time was Senior Master Sergeant David, and uh, I heard him, and he said, "Yeah, we're on the seventh floor. We're clearing room by room." And uh, I waited till he finished, and I said, "Hey, uh, we're in a vehicle. We're heading your way, and we're going to go to the shop and get some equipment, and we're coming back." And he said, "Okay, get off the air. Shut up." And I said, "Okay." So. Uh, after that, we just continued to listen to what was going on, and uh, that's what they were doing. They were reporting uh, how many floors they had cleared, worked their way up, and then back down, and then, again, hearing the firemen talking about that they found another body or they were helping wounded out of Building 131. And uh, so, anyway, I just tried to con- uh, concentrate. Okay, I knew these guys were, were going to be okay. Uh, I didn't know how many wounded we had or what the situation really was. It just, uh, by the time we got to the EOD shop on uh, Prince's Is, we had heard about uh, seven bodies being found. So uh, we had an APC and a couple of vehicles, and uh, I was thinking possibly we wouldn't even be let into the compound because we had both uh, the security forces, a security police at that time, uh, and the Saudis on the gate. And we also had a kill box uh, to prevent anybody from coming in the main gate with a, a, a M60 on that. And so you would have to actually come into the south side and come up the long side before you actually turn into the base proper, the towers proper. Uh, so I had the, the lieutenant, we, we left the, the vehicle that we used to go downtown uh, at the shop, and we took a van and loaded up. Uh, we already had the standby equipment in there emergency response and some explosives. And uh, then we grabbed everybody else's ready bags and just threw them in there. Didn't know who was, who was good, who was 100%, and uh, threw them in there. And then I drove the APC. I led uh, the lieutenant, and we drove over. And the Saudis tried not to let us go in, 
on the inside, so I jumped the curve, had the lieutenant follow us, and we went in through the outside. Uh, I was standing up in the hatch. I wanted to make sure that the uh, security forces guy, the security police guy could see me so I wouldn't get shot. And then we drove slowly up. And there was a parking area behind building 131. That's where you're supposed to park. And again, I'm going to say that there is no lights on. So there was lights on at the gate, but there was no lights on at the the two buildings. You couldn't see hardly anything. So what was that scene like that you first encountered when you came up to the building? Well, and so uh, nobody was there. So I actually um, had to run around the CE building, and then I started hearing voices. So I had thought maybe the UD guys had moved to, because uh, we were now starting to get some light from the mosque, and you could see the smoke and the dust. It was still in the air, right? And I came around the building, and then you saw almost everybody in the, from the towers in the middle between the buildings. So they were doing triage, and then people were just waiting. Uh, they had already cleared their buildings, and they were doing re, uh, roll call. That's what they were doing uh-huh. at that point gotcha. in time. So it was pretty easy to find the UD guys, and we had some guys pretty beat up. Um, the guys, that picture I sent you from the east side of the building, yeah. The guys' rooms that had been in there, they had been hit by the window frame. So not only did they have uh, glass uh, fragments coming at them, shards, the window frames had uh, broken free. One guy took a corner of a window frame between his big toe. It split his toe about two inches in between the toes, and then it missed his head and stuck in the wall. Oh, and uh, two of the Army guys, I guess they were covering their wives, when the explosion went off, but they both took a window frame to their back. One guy had six stitches. The other guy had about 30 in his back. And uh, everybody else was doing pretty good except for the dust. I mean, their, their, their eardrums weren't just blown out by the, the blast? No, so they were, they were doing pretty good. I'm, I'm sure that if you were to check with them now, they had some hearing issues. Um, but this, this is the amazing thing. Uh, so they were telling me, uh, well, no, I'll, I'll get into that later about uh, what actually happened that night for them. But uh, uh, so the lieutenant, he immediately wanted to go to the blast site. These guys told him where it happened at because we couldn't see it from that location. And we had some guys from the, uh, the current rotation. They were on standby, and they said, hey, we want to take this. So... They did. They went to go look at the site and make sure that the security guys were actually protecting the evidence, right? We didn't Mm -hmm. want the city guys to start meandering around picking up souvenirs. And uh, so they went out there, and uh, we're talking to the other guys, and they're just telling us what happened. I was just amazed by what they had done. Um, And then a security policeman came by, and he said, hey, we need an EOD rep. Uh, the wing commander wants to see, this is like 40 minutes after the detonation. He wants to see OSI, security police, and EOD right now. So, so they're looking around and go, hey, you, you're pretty fresh. Why don't you go? So me and a, a Staff Sergeant Rains, we went to the, uh, they were using the, uh, the dining facility as his uh, temporary uh, command post. And so it's right smack dab in the middle of everything. And uh, so we're standing tall in front of uh, General Swalier, and he goes, somebody's, he just started right off, because somebody's ass is going to hang out, and it's not going to be mine. He goes, you guys need to go back to your offices, find any documentation 
that explains why this happened. And so, wow, we come out and uh, we're looking at each other and we're going unbelievable. Yeah, he's looking to cover and, his uh, ass. Sergeant Reigns, he was on the current rotation. She goes, "Yeah, we got all the Security Council meeting meetings. We've been saying everyone." that we should be not in these buildings or move the fence, right? So, okay, so we drove back across, looked in the safe. We found everyone. We made a copy of them, and we brought them back. And I think at that time he'd only been on, on the job for two or three months, General Swallier. So uh, we brought it back, and he looked. And he goes, okay, you're excused. And so I'm glad we made copies. He just kept them. And... Um, the security police guy, he had only been there probably five days longer than me. Um, and he ended up having to stay in there with the OSI guys. So we were dismissed. We went back. Went right back to where our guys were at. And uh, we were still, <clears throat> it's still the middle of the night. So uh, they did roll call again. And uh, we had a lot of injured, injured people that had been taken to the hospital downtown. Um and it comes to find out that they did another search through the building um, in the morning. They waited till the lights, uh, the sun came up. And they did find one guy that had been missed, but he had been in a chair on the fourth floor, and uh, he was killed almost immediately. He took a piece of glass to his uh, right leg. The femoral artery was cut. And even if, if these guys, when they were doing the search and clearing the building, he's probably dead within four minutes. But the chair, when he rolled backwards and the chair went over the top of him. So nobody saw him. And of course, he didn't call out when people were searching. So he'd only been there two days before the blast. So there was a lot of people that didn't, you know, know, know who, who he was. was. Yeah. And uh, so he was found on the second search. And that was... At that time, the only person in our building that was killed uh, from the blast. Uh, there was a lot of people that were damaged, uh, their eyes, their faces. Um, <clears throat> yeah, according according a, to uh, what I read, nearly 500 people injured. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the blast was channeled and focused as it went through the buildings, kind of like Chicago, the Windy City, right? Uh, uh, we have a, there's a guy, he's a civilian here with me. He was in one of the fourth or fifth buildings back, and when he was telling me what happened to his building, I was just amazed that they took almost as much damage as we did. Uh, our building actually twisted. It was pushed and twisted, and in some of the floors, the staircase was separated from the wall eight inches. And uh, so when the sun came up and they actually could see the damage, we were not allowed back in the building except for the uh, search crew to do one more search. And uh, so basically we were told we were going to have to find other places to stay. So most of the UD guys went back to the, our work center, the trailer, and uh, we just started uh, figuring out what we were going to do. Now, uh, none of us could sleep, right? Uh, so we started thinking about this new potential uh, vehicle-borne IED. We just called it a large IED at that time. Um, so we, we looked at the size. Uh, the reports was it was an 18-wheeler, it was a tanker truck, and we figured that <clears throat> at that time we had to go with worst-case scenario, that this was at least probably 20,000 pounds of explosive. Now, that could vary if this was a more like a dynamite, you know, or if it was more like Simtex or C4, you were going to get different results. But at this time, uh, 
and it was still dark, we figured out we wouldn't even need the bomb suit. We would we were just within 700 feet. There was no need to even have a bomb suit or any protection walking up to this thing if we get another one. So that's what we were basically trying to do is see if we were going to get another rapid attack right after this one and what kind of procedures we could come up with uh, to, to counteract it. Um, we basically figured out from the other description from the, the, uh, the security policeman that was talking was it was probably a non-electric initiation. It was nothing sophisticated. Uh, the guy got out of the truck, he started, and he left, and he had about five minutes. So uh, we just tried to come up with an RSP and what we could do to counteract it, or if we could even just get in the truck and drive it away if, if we had enough time, right? So these are things that we were talking about until early in the morning. And uh, the next day uh, started out uh, very confusing, of course, Um we waited for the uh, senior master and Dave to come back from the uh, the morning meeting at the wing, and we just conducted business as we were doing before the blast. Uh, some of the things that were going on was uh, if we were going to have to relocate, if we were going to get more people in, but we found out fairly quickly that the FBI was coming in. They had already put a team together. They showed up the next day. Uh, or that evening. Uh, so this is the next day. They showed up late that evening. They were pretty tired. Uh, but they requested that we take them around and do a survey. So we, we went to the top of the buildings, and we started looking for evidence. And uh, these guys were tagging it and bagging it, taking pictures. And uh, a lot of people were confused why it was the, the FBI, but who would you have come in to do this? Would you actually have... OSI, CID, or uh, NCIS, uh, military, would you have the CIA? I mean, really, the FBI probably made the best sense to yeah. come in. and also they're interested in criminally prosecuting the terrorists, so the FBI Correct. makes sense to exactly. gather evidence. So um, there was a – I'm going to tell you this. There was a lot of uh, emotional people yeah. wondering why they were having to take care of the FBI, but uh, it – Within a couple of hours, it worked out. I mean, they kept their cools. Uh, we finally got other people to, to realize this was going to happen. I mean, we actually, they went into space. We, people were trying to clean up their areas and figure out how they were going to uh, stay in their, their buildings. And there was just a lot of raw emotions that first morning through the day. Um, but I, I guess they did, did a pretty good job. I think that even for the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, I think the ATF... Uh, was the lead on the uh, investigation, and then the, they they assisted the FBI. I think this was actually the first FBI-led uh, investigation with explosives. Now, I may be incorrect, but I, I think that is why this was so important, too, to get these guys out. Um, so what happened after that was uh, they decided it was too damn hot to work at uh, Cobar Towers during the day, so uh, they started work at 10 o'clock, and a lot of people that were working regular days, uh, including us, went and helped sift it through dirt. And we worked from 10 to 2 uh, every in, night in until that was actually finished. And then we'd go back and get some sleep and go back and do our regular job. Um, so our, our rotation guys, most of them left about three days after the blast. And we got new guys in, 
And we actually had an uh, F-16 go down south of Half Moon Bay. Do you know where that's at? Uh, I don't know where it is, no. Okay, it's, it's, it's about 45 minutes south of Dahran. Okay. So Half Moon Bay is also where the Saudi EOD guys did their demo. That's where we did our demo. And it was pretty close to there. So an F-16 went down uh, with live ordnance. And uh, our new uh, superintendent, when he came in, uh, Senior Master Sergeant uh, Groff, uh, he said he was going to take charge. Well, he kind of screwed the pooch right from the get-go. He he took a truck uh, to the uh, the checkpoint area where they were bringing together all the assembly area for the uh, the folks that were going to go downrange to recover the aircraft. All of our trucks had been at half full. Uh, the pumps weren't running, but we did have reserve uh, cans that we could fill up the truck, and we kept asking them. You know, uh, Sergeant Groth, do you not want to uh, to fill up the trucks? We got times so we can bring the cans to you. He kept saying no, so they uh, they went out to uh, Half Moon Bay. They started doing the uh, the initial assessment and recovery, and then they ran out of fuel. So they he decided to have the fire department push him all the way back. I mean, push him, hit it, bumper to bumper, push him all the way back to Cobar Towers. And uh, that kind of started the bad blood between the both of us and some other folks. Um, so when they, they had a mission at uh, Ali Al Salim, which is up in Kuwait, mm-hmm. about a week and a half into this, uh, the troublemakers got sent up to Kuwait and clear that. So they were looking at expanding the, uh, the location where they had trailers for pilots. We were going to get more crews. So we needed to go up there and... and uh, clear this area, make sure it was munition-free. Um, this should have been a fairly easy thing to do, uh, but this area, not only had it been a trash area, but uh, the Iraqis, they had shot a lot of rounds here, and we had too. So um, every day it was a daily walk with a, the metal detector, and we were we were bringing up uh, eating utensils as well as rebar. We probably dug up almost that entire uh, five acres uh, to make sure it was clear. We did find two uh, blue 63s. It's a, it's a bomblet. And uh, I'll tell you, it was so hot and dry up there. We were drinking uh, a liter of water and maybe only having to, to pee once a day. Uh, we were, you know, we couldn't drink any more water. Uh, we were just sweating it out that fast. But uh we uh, we did that mission and we came back down and we uh, two of us got uh, hit to go down and recover the uh, AIM-120 warheads. They had been marked, but uh, they hadn't touched them yet. And uh, so we came back from a very dry location to a very <laughs> humid one again. And uh, there was also better ones out there. That was the other thing. They wanted to get stuff back to uh, the base and get it wrapped up. And then we were going to take the uh, the warheads and and to Half Moon Bay and demo those and uh, blow them up. They weren't they were not needed for the investigation. They didn't cause any uh, incident to the aircraft. So that's why we were getting ready of the uh, the rocket motors and the warheads. Uh, so we finished that. And we came back, and when we came back, there was talk of that we were probably going to go down to uh, Prince Salton Air Base. Do you know where that's at? Uh, I don't, I, I think I know where it is. I've never been there though. 
Well, it's out in the middle of the desert, and uh, we had used it. They used to call it Al's Garage. The Air Force uh, has had vehicles out there since the early 80s with a contractor crew that maintain them, and there's a you know runway and everything out there. That was supposed to be our, you know, the issue with um, rapid deployment. I mean, the Army used ships, right? <clears throat> we saw that with the first Gulf War that a lot of stuff got um, – stovepiped at Dover and Charleston. There just wasn't enough aircraft to move that stuff. We've known that for a while. Um, so anyway, uh, that was the Air Force solution was to put stuff in place. And, you know, that stuff that the tires rot, and if you don't have a good crew maintaining the vehicles, they're not really worth anything once you get them, you get a deployment or a need for them. So uh, th it had been used for that, and then they told us we were going to start uh, – getting tents set up and getting ready to receive the majority of the forces coming in. So we, uh, the same crew and some other people got sent down to Prince Salton and we started that, that process. So that, this is within three to four weeks of the blast. Wow. And, uh, so we started setting that up and that, that went pretty well. And, uh, our superintendent was actually one of the last people to leave Cobar Towers, he did not want to come there, uh, and he finally showed up, and uh, just in time for us to get ready for our rotation to end, and then fly out on the rotator out. Now, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what happens in, the, in a very hot, dry place. It limits the flight of heavy aircraft, so um, most aircraft was coming in and going out, uh, very early in the morning, like 2 o'clock, uh, just so that you actually had air uh, to lift the aircraft, right? Uh, and that was one of the things. You didn't really have that problem at Dahran with the moist air, but uh, uh, thin air definitely with the, the hot conditions, uh, with a heavy load, you definitely needed uh, lift to get out of there without any problems. So what ended um, up happening with the uh, Cobar Towers? I mean, what was the end result from that uh, investigation and, you know, your your, uh, your perception on it or take on it? Well, and there, there's a lot of uh, conflicting parts, and it, I guess it's still issues today, right? Yeah. I will say that I still think uh, it is higher than 5,000 pounds. Uh, we did our own little cheap test, and uh, again, this is one thing about explosives that I think a lot of people uh, don't understand. They're used to seeing what you see in the movies, right? Uh, uh, I've been on several tests with scientists, and, and they write their numbers down, and what they don't take into account when you do these calculations for explosives is that the terrain, the ground, the clouds, uh, the air density, uh, they can take some of these things effect, but it's still, uh, you can see things happen just basically because of the lay of the land and how the, the wave travels. Um, and again, that just comes with experience. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I just, uh, a lot of this comes down is that they tied the, the, the formal report to a number, and a lot of people disagreed with that, and it's based solely on that, that one individual that ran down from the top of the building, the security police guy, that ran down from the building and ran towards the truck. Now, I think about this still. This totally amazes me that this individual ran towards the truck, and when the bomb detonated, he had his clothes ripped from him. Could you imagine that? And he was tumbled backwards. I mean, his, both crazy. his eardrums were blown out. But 
to have your actual the force of something to rip your clothes off. You're left in your underwear and your boots, and that's it. And uh, it still just amazed me that guy lived. Um, so, so the perpetrator was a was a man by the name of Hezbollah Al Hajaz. Uh, uh-huh. Not to be uh, confused with the actual group Hezbollah, it was, it was the guy's name, um, and he was reportedly a, a Shia terrorist. But as Jack and I were discussing before we recorded, there's uh, allegedly some controversy with that, with uh, with alleged ties to Iraq, as as you were saying, Jack. Well, yeah, I was just reading about how after nine eleven, I think they tried to maybe shift the blame to Al Qaeda. Well, it. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that. I think this is still it was Iran sponsored, mm-hmm. and like the it's like the eighty three bombings. You know, okay, in so if if the explosive was Simtex, where did they get all that? Where did it come from? And who paid for all this? Right. So uh, I think there was some some pretty big hands in in sponsoring and and, and probably engineering this. But uh, uh, I, I got to say that. Uh, one of the things that I've totally disagreed with, so when, when we went up to Kuwait, I, I forgot to mention this, so that the uh, security policeman, the captain that got there a couple of days before me, uh, we found him up at Kuwait when we went up there for our the range clearance, right? And, I mean, he looked totally uh, downbeaten, and uh, he told us, he goes, my career's destroyed. And we're going, what happened? He goes, so I've been exiled by the wing commander. He says, it's my fault, Right. And I goes, so how's it your fault? Your guys did not let them penetrate the gate, okay? That truck did not come into the gate. The issue is with the perimeter, and that's still not your issue. You're doing what, what you and all your predecessors have been told to do. You defend the inside the perimeter. And I'm sure his career was over. I mean, I, I felt really bad for the guy. And, you know, he, this guy... The, the wing commander tried to get his second star. He said it wasn't his fault. Uh, this this goes back to, to every wing commander should have been held accountable for that, right? They picked the location. They thought it was safe, and they didn't listen to their folks. Right. And, and again, heck, we could have gone back to tents. I think most people would have done that. But uh, I just I really hope that we never come across this situation again where people think that, uh, comfort is is over safety, right? And uh, well, I, I just this is probably going to be a hot issue for a long time. But uh, uh, who did it? Who is responsible? But uh, there's been a couple of good books on that. Again, I I think it really points back to Iran and their operations over Iraq as a way to uh, I guess undermine our operations in Iraq right. which we, we at that time you know a lot of, just for some people who may not recall uh, we were enforcing a no-fly zone over Iraq at that time correct and then for both and we had the northern watch out of Turkey and then of course we were the southern watch and I mean just how much money we spent uh, with the aircraft coming down and the people um, that was a big operation now, the, the lieutenant told me he was going to put us in for decorations and all that stuff. And uh, so I just got to say, the, the guys that were there, uh, excluding the lieutenant and myself, they uh, deservedly earned a commendation medal with valor for what they did. So I didn't really talk about that, but Senior Master Sergeant David, he led the team. from He gathered them all together from the sixth floor, and they went to the seventh floor, and they brought back some uh, severely wounded folks. They saved two lives, and that was to uh, 
the credit of uh, one of the tech sergeants. Um, he had actually been in a failed experiment uh, at McCord Air Force Base. They tried to take EOD, fire department, and uh, paramedics and put them together into one unit. <laughs> And they expected everybody to be cross-trained. Well, the only people that actually had to cross-train was the EOD guys. This really hurt the airmen there, and I think that uh, most of those guys have gotten out now. But uh, Tech Sergeant Lytle, that was his name. He was on the, the current rotation, and he left shortly after this. But because of the paramedic skills he learned, he actually saved two lives, and, and it was great that he did that. Um, so the lieutenant said he was going to do a decoration for us. I said, I don't really care. That's okay. But what he did was he put our names on that decoration. And we were not there. We were not part of that. And so what happened was uh, one of the guys on our rotations, he had gone to Nellis for a range clearance operation, which is a, a regular thing. That's where Lieutenant Jones was from. And he was talking to uh, one of the admin specialists there at Nellis at the EOD shop. And the, uh, the guy working there says, hey, you know, Lieutenant Jones is going to get this medal, right? And so he said, no, you mind if I see it? So he reads it, and he goes, oh, this is a complete lie. He wasn't there for that. <laughs> so anyway, he called me up, and he said, hey, uh, can you write a statement? And I said, sure, I can. So I wrote a statement. I, I explained exactly what we did, where we were at. We were not in any part of that uh, evacuation of our building. So that went up there, and Lieutenant Jones uh, was asked to resign. They took his medal, and then, of course, they said, well, uh, you know, you're going to get a medal next week. And I said, yeah, I don't want to just go ahead and turn it in. I, I didn't do any of that stuff. So anyway, uh, Lieutenant Jones actually got picked up for Secret Service uh, within a month of being uh, resigning from the Air Force. <laughs> What's the uh, the breakdown of, of the 20 killed? How many of those were civilians? How many service members? Well, so those those 20 were all, uh, they were attached to that C-130 flying squad. They were all Air right? Force. Mm, okay. It was all Air Force. Now, when you start talking about the Saudi deaths, and again, that's another thing. I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, two days after the blast, there is a uh, Cobar Towers-like uh, community just to the east of our buildings. It's almost exactly the same. If you go to Google and look, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, somebody called in an IED, and why we got called, uh, I was on standby, uh, so we took a truck over to these other buildings. I'm going to tell you right now that they probably lost 100 to 200 people, civilians, the Saudis did, uh, on that side and on the other side. So... The floors, the dried blood, I mean, there was, it was just completely dried red. All the windows were broken out, and they still will not report how many people they had killed. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I, I, when I was reading about it, I didn't see anything about Saudi fatalities. So just walking through that, I had to walk through several floors. So the call came in. I think it was a prank call. I did not find a suspicious package or an IED, but I could see that every room had people that had come out of there bleeding drastically, okay? And they either were dragged down the stairs or whatever, but uh, there was a lot of people. So, um, and that's, that's all we had of that. So I, I told our other guys what I had seen, and, uh, you know, there was nothing we could do about that. We were just waiting. We thought that the, that would be published, but that was never published. 
Interesting. Um, I, I had an unrelated question because I, I think we've covered this at, at length for sure, and I'm glad we did because most people listening probably have not heard you know that much about uh, what went on that day. And uh, uh-huh. so I'm curious of the connection with uh, Sergeant Major Mike Vining. How, how did you meet him? Did did your service cross over at some point? No, no. So. Um, uh one of my the guys so when i left uh barksdale i went and stood up a unit called the 820 security forces group that unit was set up specifically to deal with these kind of issues so our mission was to go into a, a site first set up the perimeter for the wing and then when the wing came in we transitioned them so they had to stand off already they knew where all their stuff was supposed to go and we did that for five years dennis askin and myself and jody Alt uh, were the EOD guys assigned to the cops. We also had CE guys, COM guys, um, other non-cop uh, functions that supported them. So we were basically a, a unit that could go in and, and take care of everything that we needed to and then come out. Uh, we rarely didn't come out that quickly. We usually got stuck for a while. But uh, Dennis was the one. He sent me an email and said, hey, they're going to talk about Cobar Towers or something. Here, talk to Mike Vining. And then uh, he was the one that, that uh, connected us. So ah, okay. I appreciate that. But, I mean, we that is one thing about EOD, guys. We are joint. Uh, I think we're probably one of the first joint uh, schools to go together uh, and do the same thing. The, the badge is old. It's 1947, the wow. EOD badge. Um and uh, if you don't know, there's a, a memorial wall. It used to be at Indian Head. Uh, it's Mike now was down at Eglin yeah. Schoolhouse. They have a ceremony every year, and they add the new names for people killed uh, in dealing with uh, explosives. Um, Mike was saying that thankfully they don't have to put any uh, names on for 2017, uh, but yes. the, that they are going to add some names of people from past conflicts who, you know, mm-hmm. for one reason or another, didn't end up on there. So if, if you ever get a chance to go to that ceremony, that's it's a, it's a pretty nice ceremony. Um, but uh, they've had uh, they've done that for a long time, so it's a long tradition. Uh, Air Force guys, EOD guys, the first ones was a uh, after a uh, rocket attack in Vietnam, and they had uh, aircraft that had this uh, chemical fusing. So. I don't know if you know anything about uh, chemical fuses, but when you, you put the fuse in, you broke a glass Like ampule. chemical pencils. Yes, but but this is a little more sophisticated than that. It actually, so you had a different uh, delay based on the acidity, right? right? Well, once you loaded these bombs, they don't do this anymore. Once you loaded them on the airplane, you had to get that airplane to take off and go drop those bombs. So they had loaded up the aircraft. They were ready to go when this rocket attack came in, and it... it damaged the base, it damaged the, uh, the airfield, and so they canceled the mission. So uh, these Air Force guys were called out to go ahead and remove these fuses. Now, these fuses, I mean, they had a lot of things crazy. You had to put the bomb down, you had to hold the fuse in place, and you had to roll the bomb, okay? If you change the, uh, <laughs> the uh, position of the fuse, it could go off, right? Uh, so they got quite a few of these done, but they didn't get them all done, and they were killed uh, together. Oh, so man. that was the first Air Force 
official Air Force casualties was in Vietnam. Uh, David, uh, um, I really okay. appreciate you taking the time to talk about this, talk about Cobar Towers and what happened out there. Uh, it's one of those incidents that uh, probably, you know, over people, most people's heads that yeah. probably haven't really thought about it that much. Sure, since I mean, it happened. I, I, both of us pretty young when, when this went down. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, so this is the first time I've actually heard a first person account of what happened that day. Um, and I think it will be for a lot of our listeners, too. So this is really great. And we really ta- appreciate you taking the time for us today. Well, good. And can I just say one other yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, of quick? course. So, uh, uh, I was able to call my wife. I mean, I'm, we've been married 37 years. I was able to call her within about three hours. And I had friends that uh, saw it on TV back home at uh, uh, Shreveport, and they went and got my wife. And, uh, and so they sat with her until I called. So I usually get uh, injured somehow on one of these deployments. And uh, so when I called her, the first thing she said, so are you missing an eye? Are you missing a limb? And I go, no, no, I got everything. I'm good to go. And she didn't believe me. And so I had the, the, the guy, Jeff Smith, a uh, good friend of mine, he got on the phone. I go, Jeff, I am okay. There's nothing wrong with me, okay? I was downtown when this went off, and I'm okay. So can you just tell her, and just she'll believe you, right? So anyway, we finally got that straightened out. But uh, uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's definitely hard on the families that had yeah. to wait. There was uh, one snafu. There was a young man that was injured, and he was all wrapped up. Nobody could see his face. And so at that time, you know, we've gotten better at reporting deaths, but uh, Mm -hmm. this time they really screwed up. They told one family their son was dead, and another family their son was alive, and then three days later they had to reverse that. So that was was a pretty sad thing. But uh, I'll tell you, it's it's, uh, terrible. We still got to do this, but, uh, you know, it's... Got to get the job done. We go into harm's way, right? And we got to have people that do that, and they they got to do the job. And uh, it's great that you guys are are going over this stuff and 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 talking to people. If if for anything, if you need me for anything else, you can text me. You can call me uh, to clarify something. If there's anything else about Air Force EOD you want to talk about, uh, I would love to. Uh, I've enjoyed this. I really have. I haven't talked about this in a long time. It's been. 22 years, and a lot of people don't want to hear about it, but uh, it was a defining moment in my life. And I I mean, I I always get the sense when when I talk to people like you, I bet we could go back in time and talk about, like, you guys just talk about World War II history and EOD disarming bombs that are left over from the war, and we could probably go on for another hour easily. If you guys want to watch something cool, uh, PBS... They had a show they did called UXB, and that right there, that's the Brits, right? Okay. Uh, check it out, see if you can find it. Uh, if you can get past all the uh, screwing around and everything. But So the Brits, when they did it, the officers actually went down to work on the bomb, okay? The enlisted guys, they prepped the hole, they prepped the equipment, and then the officer went down. So I would recommend watching that. Uh, it's very good. What's it called again? UXB. UXB. Okay. Unexploded, unexploded bombs. bombs. Okay. Yes. And then that's, that's where we got our start. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, we welcome. love having you on. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah. And likewise, feel free to reach out to us if you ever need anything. All right, Jack and Ian. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. I think the cool thing about having David Raritan on uh, much like having Mike Vining on is, and I kind of hinted at it on the last episode with Mike Vining, 
is we've had snipers on to talk at length about what they do. And I feel like um, with the amount of books out there uh, that our audience has read, people know a lot about that culture. And I think EOD is another really interesting yeah, yeah. group of guys in the military that share this really great bond. And we've hardly talked about it at all. Yeah. Because I, 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 it's a totally different way of getting to harm's way. It's, I mean, the, the, the possibility, the strong possibility that, you know, investigating something, you're, you could die at any moment. The EOD guys, we haven't talked to enough. Um, also got to make a note, the civil affairs guys and the PSYOPs guys. Yeah. We need to get some of those dudes on to talk. Absolutely. Um, so for any of you who have said that we need to have EOD guys on in the past or Air Force guys, I hope that this really, um, you know, did it for you. Uh, wrapping things up, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi Survivor and Army Ranger Chris Tonto Peranto, and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision. While Crate Club is really stepping up its game right now as 2018 progresses, by putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. And for you dog, you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna. We have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month. It's similar to Crate Club, but this is healthy treats and training aids for your dog. It's custom built for your dog's size and age. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. You can see all of that. It's at kuna.dog. That's C-U-N-A dot dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog's going to appreciate it as well, of course, and that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. Last, I got to let you know, as a reminder for all of those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% membership discounted, 50% discounted membership, I should say, to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel, and that's at specopschannel.com. Uh, you could take advantage of a limited time offer, get 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. Or the other way that you could watch the Spec Ops channel is to be a team room member at SoftRep, and you'll get that as well. And you can check that out in the app. If you go to the App Store and look up the SoftRep app, it's free to download. But, uh, you know, in order to get all those perks, you got to be a team room member. Um, so check it out. You go to the App Store and download the SoftRep app. Um, really great stuff. Our web designer, Chris, did an amazing job and is constantly updating what we have on there. Um, and I think that's it, man. Great shows. Two great shows this week for the audience to enjoy um, from two EOD guys in a row. Yeah. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com 
follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRepRadio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.